Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Hey, everybody. Man, this is, uh, this is the big day. Uh, now, I know that some of you are not into this big day. So, I, I, you know, and actually, it's, it seems like it's an increasing number. They tell us that 100 million people will be watching the game today. But let's be honest, that means uh, 220 million will not be watching the game. So uh, I uh, decided to spice it up a little before I get into the message and bring out a friend of mine, Crystal. She is on staff here with local outreach uh, into the community, but that's her Clark Kent job. Uh, Her Superman job is she works for the NFL. Woo. Some of you like it. Yeah, yeah. So I thought I'd bring her out uh, and ask her a few questions just to prime the pump, get you guys ready for the game. Uh, I can already tell you by her answers, uh, you're going to wish that she had an app or you're going to invite her to your Super Bowl party and turn down the volume because what she has to say is more significant than what they're saying on the tube. So Crystal, this is a big game. Big day. Big day, and one of the X factors you guys are going to want to be looking for is cornerback Akeem Talib of the Rams. Not only is he a former Patriot, so he knows how Bill Belichick likes to run his defense, but he was a part of the 2015 AFC Championship Broncos, the no-fly zone defense that beat Tom Brady and was the only time in the last five years that Tom did not reach the Super Bowl. The defensive coordinator that year for the Broncos was Mr. Wade Phillips, and if you're keeping score at home, Mr. Wade Phillips is the defensive coordinator for the Rams today. And what jersey are you wearing? And so, okay. So, no, you can be honest. <laughs> yes. Well, so, for those of you who don't know, Mark spent some time in New England. So let's talk about how you know, good. But they, everybody hates the Patriots. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know. Honesty is a, a, li- a little bit because of Deflategate. But uh, the, the other reason is people just don't like long, enduring champions. So they, they just. Uh, just kind of think. Yeah. Okay. So, so yes, let's talk about those Patriots. Let's talk about Rob Gronkowski and Julian Edelman, and they are your keys to success because the only person with more postseason receptions than Julian Edelman is Jerry Rice. The only person with more postseason touchdowns than Rob Gronkowski is also Jerry Rice. So that shows the significance of these two players today. Tom Brady succeeds with the exterior pass rush. Okay, his... Uh, uh, his quarterback rating is 118, but when he faces the interior pass rush, it drops down to 63. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So when we're talking about the interior pass rush for the Rams, that is keying in on two very specific players, Aaron Donald and Ndamukong Sue, and they are by far the best interior duo in the league. I, <laughs> exterior, interior pass. I don't even know what that is, you know. <laughs> So then let's I, I, I feel like when the circumstances are bad in my day, that's an exterior pass rush. Well, Tom wait, is going to feel wait, it on the wait, interior today. When I'm anxious and depressed, that's an interior pass rush. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Um, then when we look at the Patriots, they run man coverage on 54% of their snaps, and that is by far the league high. But Jared Goff is rated top three against man coverage. He actually has 10 touchdowns, one interception, and averages 9.1 yards on his pass attempts when facing man coverage. So Bill is going to have to come up with a completely new game plan for that. 
Wow. Yeah, she's on our team. Yeah. yeah. Um, good oh, news. Wait, wait, wait. Give, a, give us one more piece of advice. You can't, yes. can't go with that. Uh, well, I was going to say the good news for the Patriots fans is Brandon Cooks, former uh, Patriot. He's a Ram now. There's not a single wide receiver in the Bill Belichick era that was a former Patriot that has gone back to play against the Patriots that's put up more than 100 receiving yards. And credit to the Patriots' defense, they held Chargers wide receiver Keenan Allen and Chargers, pardon me, Chiefs wide receiver Tyree Kill to a total of three combined completions and catches in the postseason. So that boasts uh, a lot for Bill and his defense. So that's good news for you. So who do you think is going to win? The Rams. (laughs) (laughs) So just so you know, uh, if the Patriots don't win, I have a backup team. And it's, and it's the L.A. Rams. <laughs> so either way, I win. Yeah. Either way, you win. Uh, I'll leave you with uh, what yeah. Bill Belichick was asked on Super Bowl opening night this past Monday. They asked him, Bill, what did the wide receiver say to the ball? What did the wide receiver say to the ball? I don't know. I'll catch you later. Now, how am I supposed to follow that? (laughs) Just have Crystal come out and preach the message. So uh, I have some recommendations for you uh, because some of you have not been to a Super Bowl party, nor do you want to go to one, but you're going to one and you're just kind of like, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? So just some simple rules. Number one, uh, don't stand in front of the screen (laughs) when you're talking. If, you know, walk into the house, just kind of look at it around and see where the screen is, and then go from there. Rule number two, don't bring preachy opinions to the party. It's just nobody, it's good that you have opinions. Uh, everything from politics to dress to food to, uh, to God, but don't be preachy. Preachy is like this. Um, just chill out, have a good time. So let me give you some examples. Number one, uh, don't say that these teams should not be in the Super Bowl. New Orleans Saints should be there. <laughs> you know, sports is a very unjust game. Uh, you know, they're, they're, sports were never just. And, and, and a great injustice happened, but nevertheless, Everyone's there to have a good time. Number two, uh, don't tell us you can't stand Trump or Pelosi. They're not invited to the party. Uh, Number three, uh, don't give us some dietary advice that everyone everyone should be vegans. Everyone should. We're just going to have a good time. Uh, Number four, do not tell us that football is just the wrong sport. That, that you like soccer or rugby better. It, it just is, okay? Uh, keep it light and make a friend through the party, right? So the way you do that is if you're bored with the game, you go into the kitchen. And conversations for the kitchen, game for the screen, right? So, um, you know, right in the middle of the play, don't turn to me and say, so, how is it being a pastor? You know, I'm watching the game. So, we're, <laughs> we'll go into the kitchen to have those conversations. 
And then finally, number, the biggest rule of all, if you wanna have a great party, do not run out of guacamole. <laughs> guacamole covers a multitude of sins. <laughs> now, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to 1 first, first Samuel chapter 14. So two weeks ago, there was this setting, and you probably remember if you're watching the game, Rams against New Orleans, and uh, it was second quarter. Uh, New Orleans is already beating up on the Rams, 13-0. Rams can't get any momentum going. They, they've had two drives already. One ended in punting the ball. The second one ended in an interception. They have the ball again on their 30-yard line. It's fourth down and five yards to go. What do you do? If you punt the ball, you give them the ball one more time, hoping for better field position downfield, but it didn't happen the last two times, so what do you do? So Sean McVay, youngest coach to ever go to the Super Bowl, he calls in a fake punt. Are you kidding me? A fake punt in the second quarter of the game? And yes, he tells his punter, Johnny Hecker, to pass the ball to Sam Shields, and he does so for a 12-yard gain that changes the momentum of the game, and the Rams go on to win the game. So now, Sean McVay is a hero. Incredible. If it didn't go the way he wanted it, he would have been the, the stupidest coach that had ever gone to the playoffs. And so here you and I are. We live in life where we ex experience fourth down situations all the time. We experience fourth down situations in our business. What are we gonna do? Punt. We experience fourth down situations in relationships, our marriage. Here we are, we're having this fight one more time. We could just somehow replay all the fights because they're all the same. What are we gonna do? Just pretend and punt and have another fight later on. <laughs> Here we are in this same situation, caught in sin, caught in brokenness, and what are we gonna do? Pretend like it never happened, punt, and just go on. There are times in life where we gotta break the cycle. There are times in life where it, it asks for us to do something different and ask the incredible question, what if? What if we don't punt it this time? What if we don't put their offense back on the field and we figure out a way and we try something new? I believe that sometimes that's faithing it. Sometimes it's actually faith grabbing a hold of a new idea, something that we haven't tried before. There's a story in the Bible that's all about that. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 14, and I'm going to read the verse to you. Verse six, Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Two words, I want you to, two phrases. One is the simple word, perhaps. What a great thing. In the midst of that stuckness, 
fourth down and five, what if, perhaps, yeah, you don't know for sure, it's not absolute, but perhaps something else can happen. The other thing I want you to note is the, the long sentence, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. When God becomes a part of your equation, then that what if, that perhaps ignites something bigger than you. We're not asking you to become ingenious. We're not asking you to somehow become Superman. The Bible never, never asked for you and I to become Superman. The Bible asked for you and I to release faith in a super God. So let me pray for a moment and let's dive into this passage. Father, we do pray that you would open up our hearts, open up our minds to see things differently. And God, we would ask that you would take the truths that we learned tonight and sink them down 12 inches from our head to our hearts that we might leave here changed. In Jesus' name, amen. So the what if engages a big living God. That's what it does. You and I don't serve a dead idea about God. A lot of people, we talk about our idea about God when we say things like, well, what do you believe about? Well, I just believe that God's a this, this, this. I think he's this, 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 this. That's all ideas. Living is the fact that he's in this room, he's moving in your life and my life, and there's moments he calls us to engage in a living God in our lives, and that's called faith. So let me have you look at the screen and check out this map. This is what's going on. Obviously, I put in big red the Philistines so that you would understand that they are the big bad team. They are ominous. They are conquering. And you can see that they have invaded the hill country where the Israelites live. The Philistines lived in the plains, and the Philistines actually invaded the land of Canaan the same era that the Israelites invaded the land of Canaan. The Israelites coming up out of Egypt, the Philistines were a Phoenician people that settled along the coast, starting in Lebanon and all the way down uh, to Gaza. And they, if you give them a 23andMe DNA study, you would find out that they're largely Greek in their origin. So one is a Semitic people, one is a Greek people. But the big difference is the Phoenician slash Philistine people were in the Iron Age. They had discovered iron, brought down by the Greeks. The Jews were still in the Bronze Age. You put an iron weapon against a bronze weapon, and the iron weapon is harder than a rock. It wins every time. So they had gradually come up in, uh, into the hill country, from the south and then also in the north to gradually chip away at the property that the Israelites owned. But they not only took property away, they took away their weapons. So that by the time we get to chapter 14, the Israelites have no weapons but farming equipment. 
They've confiscated all their weapons. Only Saul, the king, and Jonathan, the prince, have swords. The rest have farming uh, weapons to fight with. On top of that, around where the blue arrow is, which uh, that small little arrow compared to the large red arrows indicates the small army of Saul, around in that area, Jonathan, the prince, had attacked a outpost of the Philistines, and that enraged the Philistines so that their entire army came up against Saul's army, including 3,000 chariots. The Jews did not have any chariots, and there were two men per chariot, so there were 6,000 charioteers, and that doesn't include the foot soldiers. Weigh that against 600 men of the Israelites. The Israelites had started with 3,000, but when uh, Saul made some horrible decisions that caused some of the people to flee, but a lot of them just fled by the sheer size of the Philistines, and so now the text says that they were hiding like foxes under rocks and, and, and in caves trying to get away from the Philistines, And so it was 600 against approximately 10,000. So what do you do? It's a stalemate. Saul is the leader. He's a head taller than anybody, uh, and he's the one that's supposed to be making the decisions. He can't decide. So at the beginning of chapter 14, it says that Saul was hanging out in Migron under a pomegranate tree. So he's paralyzed. He doesn't know what to do. 2,400 of his men have all left. He's left with 600 men. He doesn't know what to do. And my experience and your experience is that way. We have stalemates in life. What do we do? I don't know. Doesn't seem like what we do. I remember with one of our sons, he was in the fourth grade, and he had a teacher that was going through a very difficult time in her life, and I happened to know about that, and it was bleeding out into the classroom. And I went to the the principal, and I said, I'd like my son to be changed to a different class. It's just not working out well. I didn't want to go into the details. And he says, no, you're going to have to learn that kids don't get to switch classes. They just go through life. And nobody tells me that. (laughs) And... I said, you know what, I am a, I am a consumer, <laughs> and I will decide where my child goes to school, and I began to look through my options and so forth, and so finally one, that year, he became uh, a member of a prep school that was uh, down the street, cost us an arm and a leg uh, to, to put him there, but that vice principal was not going to win. We have stalemates in life all the time, in relationships, business personal lives, emotions, where it's so easy to make the decision to do nothing. Now, sometimes nothing is the best decision to make. Truly, I'm, I'm not criticizing it because sometimes patience will just buy us enough time for a new ex- circumstance to enter into the picture. But sometimes it takes for us to exercise the what if. What if we do something different? What if we try something different? And particularly 
as people of faith with a big, big God, what if we reach out and engage this big, big God? So Jonathan, in verse 6, says to his armor bearer, if you're wondering what that is, it's the one who bears his arms, uh, come, let's go over. It's just a simple idea. So there's this outpost that's um, just not too far away, 20 guys, and let's, let's at least do something. It's two against 20. Let's go over and see what begins to happen. Now, here's what I've noticed about how these moments of change in faith happen. The number one reason is pain. We're going through pain over and over and over again. And finally, we just say, we got to do something different. It's like a, a couple that they only know one form of dance, you know, ballroom, and they keep stepping on each other's feet. And they say, you know, this isn't working. Let's learn a new dance. What if we try something different? We've done that vocationally. We've done that uh, relationally, and we've done that spiritually. A conversion, someone repenting and coming to faith in Jesus Christ is deciding this isn't working. I don't like who I am. I don't like what I'm doing. I don't like guilt and shame. What if it's true that Jesus Christ died for my sins? What if all of those crazy Christians are actually right and I, I reach out and put my faith in Jesus Christ? What if I have forgiveness? What if I have a new life? You see, that's the way change begins to happen. So Jonathan suggests to his armor bearer that, that we do this, and he takes action. And I think faith is usually related to some kind of action. Oftentimes in the Western world, we think of faith as more of a mental heart thing. And, and so we make that step of faith, but then you're left with only your hairdresser knows for sure whether you've done anything or not done anything because it's just private and it's inside. But I've noticed that once I make that private inside decision, there's externals, there's actions that begin to happen. I go to that person and say, I'm sorry. I, I take a new route. If I'm, if I'm addicted to substance, I decide I'm not going into uh, liquor stores anymore to buy peanuts. I'm going to buy peanuts at Rite Aid instead. You know, whatever. We, we make decisions that follow our steps of faith. And so this is what Jonathan is doing. So in the text, in verse 4, it says, on each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes, and the other was called Sene. And one cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, and the other to the south toward Geba. Here on the screen is 2,000, 3,000 years later what this looks like. So to the south towards Geba is this cliff that was called Sina. And to the north towards 
Michmash was this cliff called Bozes, which means shining, because the sun would shine on this cliff. And over here are the Philistines. It's just an outpost, just 20 guys guarding. And over here, way back beyond eyesight, is the 600 people that are with King Saul. But Jonathan and his armor bearer decide to cross over. Take a look at this. Get it in your mind because most decisions feel like this, like a cliff. There's a gap. You know, I, I, I can do so much, but I end up with this gap. And that gap is the faith gap. You can't cross that gap without faith. It's just you don't have enough in you. You're not strong enough. You're not smart enough. You don't have enough relationships to get over the gap. So it's faith that carries you from one side to the other. And I like the fact that they don't play it safe. They decide, we're going to step out. And this armor bearer is a true friend. It says in verse seven, do all that you have in your mind to Jonathan. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. It's so good if you have friends around you, not that just are yes people and do whatever you want, but they're true, true friends that will sharpen you like iron sharpening iron. But once the decision is made, I'm with you. I'm not leaving you as a friend. I'm your wingman. And so they carry through with this idea of not saying it, playing it safe, and they ask the question, what if? And it's going to involve, if you make this decision, it's going to involve probably a change in your time because you look at your time and say, wow, my time is disappearing and I'm dying. What am I going to do? It's going to involve a decision. It's going to involve a decision sometimes with your words. I'm hurting people, the very people I love. I'm hurting. We're going to make a decision to cross that gap with the words that we use or the thoughts or the actions because otherwise, it's fourth down and five, and we're paralyzed. We're going nowhere. We're stuck. We were actually in this. I've, I've, I could stay here all day telling you about my stuck stories in my life, but I can remember in this very building, we were stuck. We started a, a fundraising program way back when we were in the... Ralph Shopping Center, and we just said, what if? Land is disappearing. We're a coastal church that can't buy land in Valley Center. So how do we do this? It's disappearing. So we started a thing called Fields Are Ripe, and, and we said, we're, we're, we're going to build a building. We're gonna, and everyone said, what are you building? Where are you going? I said, I don't know. But we're reaching out with a what if. We raised a million and a half dollars out of that, and then this land came up for sale. It was Christmas Eve, and there were six other, other bidders on the land, and they wanted six million for the land. Where are we gonna get six million? We don't have anything. You know. Well, where are we gonna go? What are we gonna do? What if we reached out, you reached out, and we bought the land, only having one and a half million, and you raised the money, and here we are. Then we drew this, the plans for this beautiful auditorium sanctuary. 
you haven't seen it. It sits right over here. They look like trailers. <laughs> and there's a tent there, high tent people. Um, and there's a beautiful auditorium there with seats that you love to sit in. And, and you know, a stage, well, everything. And once we had it all drawn up, we couldn't afford it. What are we going to do? We don't have that much money. And I said, what about this building? And they said, yeah, but that's just a gymnasium. I said, no, it's not. It's a family center. <laughs> Let, and we took a vote among the staff and among the board of directors and said, you know what? We either punt the ball and we don't buy the land and we don't build the building or we go for it. Are you in or are you out? And we, you know, it was just one of those fish are cut bait moments. You and I have them all the time. But the difference is that you and I have a God. With God, because we're not hindered by many or by few, we're a majority. Now comes the next part of the story. I call it, faith it, don't fake it. <laughs> faith versus presumption. Now careful, some of you I'm gonna uh, gently correct for just a moment. The Patriots, when they played the Chiefs, uh, the Patriots had two fourth down situations where they went for it. One went well, but one of them, they only had one yard to go, and they got stuffed. The Chiefs held them, and they couldn't, and the Pats had to hand over the ball right there. Uh, whatever yard it was on, 40-yard line. So sometimes we didn't do the right thing. Sometimes we faked it. We didn't faith it. It didn't work out. What goes wrong? Well, I'm going to help you with that delineation. In verse 8, Jonathan said, Come then, we will cross over toward the men and let them see us. So we're going to go into the gap between the two cliffs. If they say to us, Wait. Wait there until we come to you. In other words, the, the Philistines are going to look down into this valley and say, hey, you guys, we see you. You stay there. We're coming. Then Jonathan says to his armor bearer, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, hey, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Now, you may feel like that's just kind of an arbitrary sign. And, you know, there's people that lay out fleeces, like Gideon's fleece. And I've always thought when people tell me about their fleece, I think that's a stupid fleece. You know, it's just like, uh, you know, God, if the light turns green again sometime in this daytime, That'll be a sign for me that you want me to buy a Maserati. You know, it's like, it turns green all day long. You know, we, we love to pick biased signs and claim them to be God. So we're not to do that. So what's going on here? It would be very unlikely for soldiers to invite opponent soldiers up into their outpost, which makes their outpost vulnerable much more likely that they would say, we're coming down to you. 
So the, stat, the stats on this thing is very unlikely. They'll invite us up. And when they say, come up here, Jonathan nudges his arm over and he says, it's the Lord, come on. And they climb it up on their hands and feet to get up there and the battle ensues. So if they say, or if they don't say, those kind of things are critical as we faith it. So how do we do that? Well, I, I think there's a lot of ways that we do that. One is through the Word of God. Does this make sense with the Word of God? One is through the Holy Spirit. Is there a peace in my heart about this, or is this just wacko? But another way is where Jonathan consults with his armor bearer. Uh, you should have friends that are around you. Is this a good idea? Or am I risking too much? The game of risk, we used to play it all the time. And in, in the game of risk, sometimes you're lured in to conquering too many countries at one time, and you make yourself vulnerable to the next person who rolls the dice, and, and it might be the end of you. So in the game of life, we're always asking, is this, is this a God moment or not? I want to faith it. I don't want to fake it. There was a great book that came out back in the 70s uh, in, in, in the height of the whole charismatic movement, which I enjoyed, uh, and it was by Chuck Farah, who was a scholar, and he, the name of the book was Faith or Presupposition, or, or Presumption. So a lot of what came to be called the name and claimant movement which was largely about money and health, saying, I just claim, because I'm what ifing, I'm saying perhaps I just claim that oftentimes that was presumption, not faith. So faith is not confidence in yourself. Faith is not you reciting over and over and over a Bible verse until it becomes internalized. Faith is reaching out of you to a big God. And, and you cannot coerce him. You cannot put God's arm behind his back and say, you better do this because I'm, quote, faithing it. So Jonathan understands that he cannot close the gap. Only God can but he's stepping into the gap to see if God is going to be with him. So when you and I faith it, it's almost like crossing a stream. I'm just going to step on this stone, and if it doesn't tilt and throw me into the stream, I'm going to take up this foot and step onto the next stone. And that's exactly the way faith is. People would love to say, no, it's just running across. No, it's not. This is real life with real people around you and real resources around you, but it's a real big God. One of the greatest stories of faith or presumption is the story of Peter when he was in the boat. And Pete, Jesus is walking on the water, and the disciples think it looks like Jesus. He talks like Jesus. He's about the same size of Jesus, but humans can't walk on water. We know that that's materially impossible. So Jesus tells him to not be afraid, and Peter responds with a faith-it moment. He throws out a fleece, 
which I, when I first read it as an 18-year-old, I thought, that is the dumbest thing he could have ever said. He says, Jesus, if that's you, ask me to get out of the boat and walk on water. First of all, I would have said, ask John or Andrew to walk on water. <laughs> you know, that's like holding your hand in front of your face with a friend and say, I bet you can't hit me. Bet you can't hit my hand, you know. And I, when I read that, I said, wow, that, that is. But Jesus says to Peter, come. And Peter has this perhaps what if moment and he gets out of the boat. And I still wonder to this day, did he tap the water a little bit? Is this gonna hold me like an I-beam or, or did he just hop out? And at what point, was it 10 steps, 15 steps, was it 20 steps that he looks down and he says to himself, this is materially impossible. The physics of this doesn't hold water. And so he begins to sink. So as you know, every pastor uses this sermon to criticize Peter's unbelief. He had no faith. And so friends, do not have unbelief in your heart. And you and I are reading the story and saying, he walked on water. <laughs> uh, give the guy some credit. So how did he walk on water? Well, he had a fleece. If that's you, bid me to come. And I, there was something happening deeper there because I know you, Jesus. I know you personally. I know you'll catch me. I know you would never let me drown. I know you love me. And it was out of his faith in who Jesus is not was, but is that he got out of the boat and he walked on water. Humorously, I've always asked myself, what if he misunderstood Jesus <laughs> in the storm and everything? And what if Jesus didn't say calm, he said dumb? And I bring that up because sometimes we're not perfect. We're human beings, right? We're doing the best we can. And our view of the sovereignty of God, our view of the bigness of God, is even when I make a bad call, he's there to catch me. He's there. And that's my view of the sovereignty of God. He's that big. And finally... What we learn from this story is that we let God do the heavy lifting. All we are is the spark of the spark plug, and he's the combustion engine that does the big power work. So in verse 11, it says, so both of them showed themselves to the Philistines' outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes from in their hiding. And the men of the outpost shouted, down to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. You know, we're going to box your ears off. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, that's it, climb up after me. The Lord has given them in, into the hand of Israel. So Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet and the armor bearer right behind him and the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer who followed and killed behind him. 
So he doesn't have the sword that Jonathan has. He probably has a knife or something else. I'm sorry for the blood and gore. So Jonathan is slicing and dicing and slaying, uh, just like all the movies we've seen, and, and it's probably more of a scimitar type of sword than what you and I would picture out of uh, King Arthur's arsenal, and, and yet doesn't thoroughly kill the person. They're wounded, they're slain, and the armor bearer behind him is doing the dirty work. And, and this whole thing happens with only 20 men in an area of only about a half an acre. So three times the size of your lot, or nowadays eight times the size of your, your lot. But the point here is that God gives the victory, and then as we read on, then panic struck the whole army. Those in the camp and the field and those in the outposts and the raiding parties, the ground shook. It was panic sent by God. It just took the what if, the step of faith, and God ignites. Do you get it? We were never meant to be Superman. We were never meant to be heroes. We were never meant to be the people that are shown on TV and written about in books of, what was, how did you become such a great, famous, beautiful, handsome, tall, dark, everything person? And we say, well, it's really nothing, you know, I've just always been that way, you know? Uh, that was never meant to be the story. The story is, what happened? Uh, and it's just, well, I'm just Mr. Magoo, and I just, I just said, what if? And I stepped out on the what if, perhaps, and God kicked in. That's the story. God's the hero. And the ground shook. It changed everything. And if you know the rest of the story, God now is setting in panic. He doesn't even attack. He just, there's apparently an earthquake the Philistines are disturbed by what's, what's this battle? We're hearing the sounds of a battle. They begin to flee. That sets a stampede, and everybody's fleeing. Saul says, what's going on? Who's, we weren't even in, on the field, and there's a big battle going on, and they begin to join in the chase. And that day, not Israel, not Jonathan, not Saul, but God defeated the Philistines. And that's your story. The big story about being a Christian is that we have a God outside of us who's bigger than us, who cares about every single detail of our lives. He cares about your budget. He cares about your relationships. He cares about your heart. He cares about your dreams. And he's called us to not live our lives apart from him, or in performance for him, but he's called us to engage him in every part of our life with the, what if, perhaps. And we take that step that Jonathan took. And when that spark of faith hit, everything changed. So, fourth down, attempts. These things happen all the time in our lives. Fourth down in five. And what are you going to do? What are you going to do? So, <laughs> my son wrote, one of my sons wrote a song about this. 
some maybe 16 years ago, and some of you know it when I begin reading the lyric. Welcome to the planet. Welcome to existence. Everyone's here. Everyone's here. Everybody's watching you now. Everyone waits for you now. What happens next? What happens next? Do you know who he wrote that song for? Himself. As he tells people at a time where he was paralyzed, like, what am I going to do with my life? Every, you know, it's, it's your move now. And then comes the chorus. I dare you to move. I dare you to move. I dare you to lift yourself up off the floor. I dare you to move. I dare you to move. Like today never happened before. Today never happened before. So this is a new day. It's never happened. We are walking in virgin time. It has never been lived before. It's wonderful and scary. And there's moments for you and I as people of faith that are ambassadors and citizens of heaven, not just earth, to decide in this moment. Let me tell you what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping for a whole generation of Jonathans to rise up. Decide, you know what? Enough is enough. And you can point to any part of our country and say, you know what? We've been living in fourth and five for too long. It's time to do something about it. What if? And to rise up. I'll tell you the person who's the greatest hero of all time that did this, and it's your Lord Jesus. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, fourth and five. Father, let's punt. This is not looking good. This goes straight to the cross. There's nothing pretty about this. Let's choose another way and punt. And there's no other way. So Jesus went for it. He went all the way to the cross and he died for your sins and my sins. And because of that what if, that perhaps your life has been changed forever. So now he says, tag, you're it. Trust in me that I'm a big God for you. Amen. Amen. Would you pray with, with me? Father, we thank you this day that you are this great, big, loving God. And we apologize to you for making you just a doctrine or just an idea. And we apologize to you for living our lives apart from you, trying to do it on our own. We apologize to you for the times we faked it instead of faithed it. And we were very presumptuous But here today, as the Holy Spirit is putting into your mind what your fourth and five is, is all about, your stuckness, your paralysis, and now that you got that in your mind, what happens next?
what happens next. What if? And so, God, we reach out to you and we invite you into our checkbook. We invite you into our character. We invite you into our words and our thoughts. We invite you into our relationships, into our businesses. We invite you to become the big hero of our lives. And we'll just be the little people that dared to cross the ravine. And this morning while we're praying, while our heads are bowed, it may be that your gap is your own life, that you realize that you're without a savior. Maybe you met him a long time ago, made a commitment, or maybe not, but you've walked away, you've lived your own life, and you realize this morning that today is the day. It's time to make a decision. What happens next? I dare you to move. So in the quietness of this moment, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I dare you to commit your life to Jesus Christ. I invite you to just raise your hand where you are while everyone else is praying is a symbol to your own heart and life that you are surrendering your life to Jesus Christ, inviting him in to cleanse you of your sin, inviting him in to become the Lord of your life, to take this step. If that's you, yes, God bless you. As you raise your hand, just raise your head up as well so you can see that I'm acknowledging your hand. Yes, God bless you. Thank you. And God bless you. Thank you back there. I hope you can see me. God bless you way back there. Thank you. And you right here. Thank you. Over here. Yes, to my left. Thank you. And you, sir. Thank you. God bless you. Anyone else? If I've acknowledged your hand, you can put it down. Yes, God bless you. Back here in the back. Anyone else? Yes, God bless you. Thank you. that what if is happening, you're reaching out to a big God who loves you, who has died for you, rose again from the dead, and now we pray. Would you join me and pray this prayer silently as I pray it out loud? Lord, come into my life. How I need a Savior. Thank you for doing it all for me. for dying for me. I believe that I'm forgiven because of you. Thank you for rising for me. I believe that a new life is possible because of you. Now fill me with your spirit for from this day forward, I'm a follower of yours and you are my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.